0: Welcome to The Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Not many CDOs get to enter a new role with a clean slate, but Geraldine Wong, CDO for GXS Bank in Singapore, did just that. In this episode of The Data Chief, she explains how the bank has built a foundation of data literacy by providing employees the right tools, access, and knowledge to put data at the forefront of their workflow. This culture of education and understanding establishes trust, empowers departments to self-serve data for better productivity, and ultimately leads to stronger understanding of data for customers and employees alike.
1: The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.
2: Geraldine, welcome to the Data Chief podcast.
1: Hello. Hi, Cindy.
2: So Geraldine, you are one of our first guests from Singapore. We've had several from the APJ region, but tell us what's happening in Singapore.
1: Yeah, so I'm um, really glad to be here, um, especially Gowling from Singapore and the first one from Singapore. Um, yes. So I'm from GXS Bank, and we were one of the successful applicants. Um, and the Bank is really a consortium consisting of Grab, which is the Southeast Asia's leading super app. And Singtel, uh, which is Asia's leading communications technology group. So really the aim of this digital bank is to make banking better for everyday consumers and small businesses. This really includes serving the underserved in Singapore, the individuals, the businesses. And we want to be able to improve their financial inclusion and really drive financial revolution for our customers um, with the use of technology and data.
2: Yeah. So I'm picturing, Geraldine, our listeners, and they're thinking, how lucky is she? She's in a new role as a chief data officer with a company that's newly formed, so no technical debt, and in financial services, which is data hungry. It all sounds so easy and wonderful, starting from a clean slate. What am I missing? There's always pros and cons to
1: both sides of the thing. Yes, it's true that there is no technical debt. There is um, a clean slate for you to really start off. But there's challenges um, in terms of you've got regulators, technical risk guidelines that you you have to follow and adhere to. Um, and the technology tools, the platforms that you procure has to meet those guidelines and those frameworks as well. Um, so I would say that we had the freedom in terms of coming up with our own frameworks. We had our freedom in terms of choosing the tools to the capabilities that we wanted the bank to have. Um, And we saw what tools there were that could propel us to the next level of, of, you know, digital um, competitiveness as well. However, all within the safeguard rails of what the regular Regulators really want from us, and what the regulators needs assurance from us as well. As you know, we are a digital banking um, bank, so the only form of access that customers have for to us is really just on the app and on the websites and on the phone. So there's also a lot of security, um, technology, security, data security involved that um, you need to assure customers as well. So part of that, for example, I'll give you an example. We we tried to assure our customers on on data protection and data security. And one one of the first things that we did in Singapore, we have a certification um, called Data Protection Trustmark. And what this does is it really demonstrates through your processes, through your platform, through your tools, that there are robust um, frameworks and processes in place to keep the data being protected for the consumers as well.
2: So what's interesting to me, though, if I think about Singapore as a financial hub in the world, already your citizens had the highest average transaction value for digital payments in Southeast Asia. And you were among the leading nations for adopting cashless payments. I mean, I would say in the US, maybe in England, we kind of dropped cashless payments during the pandemic. But Singapore was already so far ahead. What was the problem that the consortium was trying to solve in creating this new bank now?
1: Really, as a new bank, we really wanted to serve the underserved, as I, I told you before. So where consumers were not able to um, have access to, say, for example, small loans or small-sized loans um, from the really established banks, we we are then uniquely placed to be able to produce such a loan. So I'll give you an example of our recently launched product called Flexi Loan. And through the name, you understand why it's called Flexi Loan. So um, as a consumer, you go on the app and everything is done through the app. You submit your credit bureau statements, your your scores, your applications, and we will get the scores to then price you um, the way you are being priced. So what happens is, say, for example, you are of low risk and you are given a low interest rate for the loan at $50,000. And that's your credit limit. However, you don't have to take all 50,000. Think of it as making up smaller loans in that 50,000. You could say, Hey, tomorrow I'm doing a renovation. I only need 10,000 and I choose that 10,000 to be paid across six months. And you get the choice to choose the flexibility of repaying when you want to pay um, through that 10 year as well. I think this kind of flexibility where you're not locked in and, and to your lifestyle needs is, is very important for us, um, which is something that it's unique within this market as well.
2: Yeah, that is unique. The short term, being able to specify the term and then even that I want to use it for whatever. So it's it could be home remodeling. It could be a car. Um, could it be like your first year of university, for example?
1: So this is an unsecured loan. For the car, it's more from a secured loan perspective. So we haven't actually launched a product for secured loans, such as motor vehicle uh, loans. Um, but yes, you could use it for uh, education if you want it. Although in Singapore, there are education loans within established banks as well that offer pretty um, preferable rates.
2: Yeah, that's great. So in coming up with these new types of financial products so that um, it's more equitable or for every consumer, how do you paint a picture of the consumer, particularly when we have now more like the gig economy, people's job terms may not be that predictable paycheck each month or biweekly?
1: Okay, so as a new digital bank, I think the advantage for which GXS Bank lies in is our ecosystem. And the ecosystem that I refer to here is really the ecosystem partners of Grab and Singtel. And in order to really take advantage of this, really this information, I think um, what we have done is to bring together the complementary data sets from each partner. So if you think about it, um, Grab would have mobility patterns, the financial payments, the wallets that they have, there's also delivery of food and supermarkets. And on the Singtel side, there's everything that you do on your mobile phone as well. Um, this complementary data set is really allowing us to then create your persona, your lifestyle, and to be able to really um, tap on this data to understand your preferences, your usages, your spending habits, really your affinity towards um, digital banking products. And some of the interesting insights that we were able to, to actually get out of this was that when we first started on customer acquisition, um, we made certain assumptions based on qualitative input from the data. But as we, you know, acquired more initial batch of our customers, we then realized, hey, you know, you learn from these profiles and you you then really enhance your approach, enhance your offerings according to how you want to subsequently target them as well. And we also looked at what types of merchants that these customers were interacting with, um, more more likely to transact with, and then be able to really provide recommendations on rewards and campaigns. But On the other hand, when when we speak about uh, personalized risk-based pricing, we spoke a little bit about how Flexi Loan was created and how the risk-based pricing came about as well. We want to be able to ensure a high percentage of loan take-up. So if I provide you that loan um, with that personalized rate, with that credit limit, I want you to be able to take that up. And we looked at the propensity of take-up as well. So all the models that were being built, was um, trying to encourage that while minimizing default. And we, again, use all our, our ecosystem data to be able to create something that we call an ecosystem risk score and be able to segment them. And I would say uh, the, the results are really encouraging and, and a large majority of customers who are really offered their personalized rates actually went on to submit their loan applications as well.
2: Yeah, so that sounds brilliant. And clearly the ecosystem gives you an advantage to delight your customers. How does privacy travel across the ecosystem? If I think that you were not part of this conglomerate, for example, a telco and Uber or Lyft would not be allowed to share PII data. Um, They might be able to share aggregated segmented data. How does that work at GXC? So one of the first things that we did, again,
1: putting consumer obligations into the heart of everything that we do uh, and and what they really want. Um, In Singapore, we have something called the personal data protection, pretty similar to, I believe, in the US or GDPR. Um, So one of the things that we did was really to come up with creating a master data sharing agreement. And in Singapore, the IMDA Um, or rather the PDPC, Personal Data Protection Commission, has also come up with a trusted data sharing framework. And then followed by the Association Bank of Singapore, that they actually shared a data sharing handbook. And in that handbook, it actually gives you guidelines, examples of how data should be shared, uh, what the process you should take, um, what are the guardrails, what are the controls that you should have in place for data to be shared with financial services um, industry companies versus non-FIs, and vice versa as well. And in our master data sharing agreement that we created with three parties, there were specific clauses in there to, of course, say that you you have to get the consent of customers for what purposes. There are what we split up into optional purposes. So purposes for marketing, cross-selling, those are really optional. and, and, And it's up to the customers to give their consent. Um, On the other hand, there are mandatory consent that consumers have to give in order to be able to leverage on the services of the bank. Um, I think one needs to be very clear that this is upfront to the consumers and that they are able to call in to ask any queries that they have to be able to have the freedom to withdraw their consent, especially for the optional consent, whenever they want to from the services as well.
2: So can they withdraw it from the app directly or... Like, do they have full visibility into that? Yes. Yes, they have full full visibility. The data
1: privacy policy of the bank is all on the website, all on the app as well.
2: All on the app. And so some have described the privacy policies of some, let's say, well, I'm not going to pick on any sector, but maybe a retailer or another bank where it's like a 50 page document and go figure out what the heck they're doing with the data. How easy or how important is it that you make it easy for people to understand exactly what is happening?
1: So I think in the data privacy policy that we have, um, it clearly states down what data has been collected from the app, what data is being shared with partners and what data is being used from partners, what purposes it is for. So it's clearly stated in each of the section. And of course, there's also a contact, right? If you need more information, you should write into this person as well. Um, I think that's all freely available and that you know consumers are able to really discern from themselves and understand for themselves uh, what their data is being used for as well.
2: Yeah. And I would imagine as well, even though it's a new bank, if people have already been using Grab for travel or um, Sing- Singtel for their telecom, there's already a certain level of trust that, okay, this is just another extension of somebody I'm already doing business with. Do you think that plays out?
1: There is an element of trust, but when it comes to data privacy, we are totally separate. Like I said, um, you know, we, we, we are a separate entity. Um, when we spoke about the, earlier I spoke about the data pr- protection trust mark that was given by the government, IMDA, this is an assurance and certification for the bank itself. Um, it doesn't rely on our ecosystem partners the, the government or the IMDA certification body was specifically coming in to audit the systems, the processes, um, to give that certification. And and this this certification is 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 a renewal, right? So it's not like once you get yeah. it, you you stick on with it. You know, at the end of um, if I'm not wrong, three years there's going to be a recertification to ensure that you meet the standards uh, of of what yeah. they expect of you as well.
2: Yeah. So the other thing in standing up this new Data team and data environment, Geraldine, is helping people understand the definitions of the data. Some might call this master data management, some might call it a business glossary. What have you done to enable clean data right from the start?
1: Yeah, so maybe I'll start off with um sharing with you the bank's data strategy, right? The first data strategy, the, the strategy that really had is um, delight customers by delivering personalized, meaningful um, customer experience while promoting uh, financial inclusions with superior data insights and AI. Now, the word superior data insights, it's really subjective. What do you mean by, 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 by superior? Um, and I think the aim is for the entire organization to be em- you know, breeding, leaving the data-driven culture to achieve this data strategy. But how do we do that, right? You need to be able to provide them with the right tools, the access and the knowledge of the data that's available. And we have to start off with understanding, knowing what each of the data variable attribute that's being collected means at the starting point and to be able to, for them to have that trust, to be able to leverage on that data for their day-to-day um, decision-making and operations. That's the key thing, the trust in the data that's available. If we have two data sets that have similar data labels, but completely different um, definitions that you see, the distributions look different, then how would we expect data users to be able to discern which data set to be used for their own analysis, right? So I think it's very important that we are able to provide um, self-serve data at their fingertips. For employees to help drive productivity. And the consistency really comes from when the data actually lands into the data lake. um, We really crowdsource from the people who knows the data the best to be able to um, upload, to be able to fit in information for what that data really means consistently. Um, And as a data governance team that I lead, um, we have also actually recently explored the use of generative AI to populate some of these definitions as well. So it really cuts down the work by a lot. Like say you have 10,000 fails that you have to define. Um, The user doesn't have to go through all 10,000, but really um, once the generative AI or gen AI really populates that, they are able to go in there and say, check through and say, hey, eyeball, which one is right, which one's wrong. So I think that has saved quite a lot of time. And I think the other thing that we also we also do monitor and check is about how many data points are duplicates how many data points have missing values it's all about the data quality so that you actually build that trust in in the data so that people have the trust in using that data as well
2: Yeah so there's there's three things there that I want to unpack so first off Geraldine I, I'm I'm going to guess that many li- listeners will go back and rewind this statement for your data strategy, because what I loved about it is you included really the business strategy, the part of the why. So delighting customers with these insights and or, or using these insights to delight the bank's customers and too often when somebody says Cindy will you look at my data strategy what i'm really seeing is a technical strategy not aligned to the business so i think that is huge did did that take a lot of crafting with your senior leadership team or was it something that was very crystal clear and everyone was aligned on from the beginning
1: i think it stemmed from uh the overall bank strategy of when i spoke to you about um including financial uh, having financial inclusion providing that revolution of financial uh, uh inclusivity to our underserved customers as well it all ties back to that and if i think about it how can i as a data officer a chief data officer within the bank help in doing that whether it's via customer experience um whether it's operations or um how do i encourage people to transact more on the app it's all leading up to that experience and that inclusivity as well. I would say it took a while to come up with it, but yet it's kind of crystal clear if you think about how you streamline towards the bank strategy as well.
2: Yeah, that's great. And then the second thing, of course, generative AI and getting to these metadata definitions, I have a view that generative AI may help accelerate uh, data literacy or data fluency, as we like to call it, because it will give everyone a common set of definitions and a clear business language of what is behind that particular field or data set. Do you agree or disagree with that?
1: Yeah, I, I do think that generative AI at this point, it's, it's really a, a good opportunity for us to share more about the data value. It's almost like a new shiny toy that everyone wants to get on board. And suddenly um, the data people, well, I like to call it the heroes, the superheroes, right? Because they know how to use um, this tool. Um, And everybody wants to know about it within the organization. And I I have been taking advantage of uh, this shiny new tool to preach about the use of data. And yes, um, we have also gone out to say, hey, you know, it's really important to get consistency in data, as well as um, the understanding of the data as well. And this really helps us in preaching or evangelizing it, whatever you call this. The need for people to input the right type of definitions to the data that we collect. Often we think that it's a, a tedious task, but until you yeah. you need it um, and it's not there, then yeah, it's... Well, it's trouble. I often say data governance is like a, a seatbelt, right? Um, usually, in cars, you you don't really want to wear a seatbelt, but when an accident happens, um, then you are like, "Oops, why didn't I wear a seatbelt?" So, in that, it's really the same scenario about you know standard definitions and the need for it when you, when you do need it. And I would say it's very important having standard definitions, especially in say credit risk scoring. When you build your credit risk models. Um, if you're using wrong metadata, wrong definitions, wrong data, um, that could that could really um, lead to undesirable results as well from, from a credit risk scoring perspective.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of debates about data quality come from a different interpretation rather than it's actually somebody fat fingered something. Or as you mentioned, maybe the data isn't complete. There are nulls. Which I think brings me to the third point, an an emerging category of data observability. Is this something that you've brought into the bank already?
1: A quick answer would be yes, right? Um, At every step of the way in terms of the data lifecycle, I think we ensure that even from the data collection, how is that data looking at? What's that distribution looking like? And you mentioned earlier about missing data, the number of nulls, um, the skewness of the data. That is being observed, and when you do the transformation, how does that look like as well? And we monitor it from if it was refreshed daily, we monitor that. And if there was a a change in the distribution, that would be flagged out as well. Um, So, all of this is really leveraging technology to help us um, monitor some of this, and how do we then remediate as well so that um, engineers and the data scientists can be informed proactively. Um, when such things occur and and what downstream impact it might have as well. So I think that's also very important. And and we have tried to embed that in, in every step of our data lifecycle.
2: I see customers at opposite ends of the spectrum. Some are running fast. And I think one leader said it's shoot first and ask questions later. And the other is like, no, never. Maybe do something at home on your personal laptop, but definitely nothing on a work uh, computer. So quite a broad range of views um, today of generative AI. You know, I also think because you get to start from the beginning, you have the advantage of being born in the cloud as an organization and as a data team. What do you see as the advantages or maybe even some disadvantages of being fully in the cloud?
1: Yeah, so I think, I would say we're really lucky to be in the cloud, um, coming from organizations in the past where most data was on-prem, uh, processing was on-prem. But yeah, the advantages really from a data perspective is about scalability. You don't have to wait for a compute resource and, and you can run it. But of course, on the flip side, you then think about how much cost you're running into if you have uh, large yes. data sets and large models. <laughs> so there's always uh, two sides of the coin, isn't it? And of course, um, the reliability, the accessibility is really important. And I think um, a lot of times it's also about the technical support. If you use managed services, you can rely on the technical support for, for that. There's also a steep learning curve. If you move from one cloud provider to, say, for example, moving from one to the other is not an easy job. It's steep learning curve. And, and there are very specialized skill set that you need to pick up as well. And that makes migration from one cloud Uh, to another, maybe a bit more cumbersome and and more uh, long-drawn as well. So yeah, but I I would see that that, that there are more advantages uh, compared to disadvantages.
2: Yeah, I think of so many of the large banks, the global banks, also um, their migration to cloud will be a multi-year journey. And some actually still think, no, (laughs) because of the risks and because of the FinOps, they don't want to blow, they want to manage to a budget.
1: Actually, one of the advantages that we've seen also um, in this whole era of Gen AI is the accessibility to the new tools. So I can't imagine if you're on-prem, you know, it's having to spin up a a separate cloud to do this. Yeah.
2: So far behind. Or Google Palm, for example. Um, Yeah. This is where cloud-first and cloud-only in generative AI is just moving so quickly that this is where I would say the gap between the analytics leaders and the analytics laggards, it just keeps widening and widening. So you mentioned the skills, Geraldine, and you also have a unique vantage point of being a professor in Singapore. So you actually get to a certain extent, very much shape and respond to the needs of business by educating the next generation of workers. What are some of the observations you've seen where higher education can do better to prepare workers for a digital economy.
1: I'll share with you um, my time as a, a professor as compared to when I was at school, because I, I am teaching at okay. the department where I graduated. And back then, almost 20 years ago now, uh, it's very theoretical. There were project-based, but but um, lesser hands-on, I would say. Um, and in my time when I spent with the kids, um, I call them kids because they're really young. Uh, <laughs> um, they, The one thing that I've noticed that has changed is that they were given projects in groups that were real life applications. So I'll give you an example. They were given this challenge to find how to predict when the rain would come. And this was for people who wanted to go out and exercise and jog. And they would have to scrape the data from the rainfall, um, the MET station in Singapore, build a model, build an app, and make it run on the app to to facilitate people who want it to check. And this is a, an end-to-end project, right? Think about it as collecting the data, processing the data in the machine learning and predicting it, and then spitting it out into an app. Um, they use Telegram and, and spitting it out. So that's interactive as well. But the thing about this, I mean, it's all good and well. I I was very impressed by all the different projects. And this is just one example. I was very impressed by that. But on the other hand, it was also thinking about when you come into industry, how are you able to continuously, consistently think about um, monitoring these models in production? For example, how does uh, ML ops or machine learning operations lifecycle within a development, a dev and production environment differ? Um, where do you, for example, in the FSI or financial services, there is something called model governance. You are a, you have to be able to assess the risk on the model. Where does this auditability, the lineage of the model lie? And, and we all need to capture this within a model registry for audit purposes, right? Um, and all the automated ML pipelines that have to be built in for, say, data preparations, trainings, how do you detect biases, model degradation, for example, all of this, um, I don't think it was captured as fully within the module that um, they were taking. So when I actually lectured in that module, it was to provide that lens for them as well, that you have to be mindful. You have to think about such aspects and components when you deploy models in production. Because oftentimes, I think the fun thing about um, being in data science is just building the models in prototype, but people forget what happens in production as well.
2: Yeah, so... That's interesting. There's there's a statistic, and I have to see if it's, I can find a more recent one, but it's something like 85% of models are never operationalized. And on the one hand, I think, well, maybe that's because there's a lot of experimentation before you decide that you want to put it in um, in an operational process. On the other hand, I also think it's maybe because a lot of the experimentation is really done off to the side and it's not connected back to the business. What do you think? Does that failure rate or lack of operationalizing sound about right?
1: Yes. I mean, from my experience, I've seen um, many models just being um, run on computers or laptops itself, right? And uh, people just do it on a monthly basis or um, yeah, weekly basis. But I think the the main issue is also about forgetting to put that model production lens right from the start. We all do some form of experimentation, uh, but there should also be environments. That's why you have dev, dev environments, you have production environments, you have yeah. staging environments. And that's for the different purposes that you have. Um, so I think organizations really need to be able to to have such environments where you prototype in one, but then you call it out for which at which stage you see that there's a promising result and you want to move it into production. And then you are already, you already have the environment in place to be able to support that change. I think the next thing is also about the other element is about having the right skill set. In a previous organization that I was at, um, machine learning engineering was just becoming popular, machine learning engineers. Uh, no one had heard of it first, right? And and this was maybe back four years ago or, or five years ago now. But it's about understanding the different skill set that's needed from a data scientist versus, versus a machine learning engineer and how they can help you productionize that as well. And if there is a missing skill set like that, I, I think it's really unrealistic for the data scientists to be able to pick up and productionize this. In essence, I think it's, it's a mix of environment processes, as well as um, the skill sets.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think this also relates to maybe some views within the region in general in Singapore. If we look at Singapore and the global workforce, Singapore is ahead on so many elements. One of the highest data literacy levels ahead in creating privacy policies, data sharing policies, and even AI ethics. Why do you think this is?
1: One is on the data privacy um, standards. And the second part that you mentioned was on AI ethics. And um, maybe let me unpack on on the first part on data privacy. I think, interestingly enough, I I was um, speaking at a panel of IMDA. So um, IMDA is really the the government body that runs uh, PDPC, which is the Personal Data Protection Commission, very much like GDPR um, type of organization. And um, within the region, I would say, yes, we are leaders in that area. But again, there's a lot of work that needs to be done even within the region. So Southeast Asia, we got to meet commissioners um, within Southeast Asia. And even what um, I I heard from the the panel that, that PII or personal data wasn't even consistent right across the region. Um, and of course, Singapore being the leader within here, we would like to be able to standardize that definition as well. And the part of my panel um, discussion was really about the real life examples that we all had in why having a unified data sharing across the region was so important because of cross-border da- data exchange. Data Singapore yes. is really small you know many organizations have their hqs or headquarters in singapore um however they have many subsidiaries within the region and it's 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 very challenging if um there are no consistent um data exchange or data sharing agreements cross border that was really the gist of of some of the sharing within that panel as well and then if i want to uh move across the lines to the ai ethics um i do agree that that You know, we've got something called the Fit Principles. Even though it's not regulated yet, the Fit Principles really help in our day-to-day creation of features within the models in identifying whether we are going to bias someone by including the attribute. Right? Is it going to discriminate anybody? Uh, Discriminate them in the form of giving them a worse-off deal, worse-off risk score. But yes, I, I do. I am really proud that we have come up with such principles to really be guiding us along as well.
2: Yeah, that's great. I guess I think of it a little bit too on how important financial services and a highly educated workforce is to the country and maybe in other places it's less so. And so it almost forces you to be ahead on some of these things. I mean, look, even high-speed internet, you may laugh, Geraldine, but we're recording this podcast and your podcast will be uploaded way faster than mine. I don't have um, fiber optic where I live. So it, it's like the infrastructure is there too. I guess it helps being a small country. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> yes, yeah, that too, that too. Yeah, it remi- it, in a way it reminds me of my time in Switzerland in some respects. So Geraldine, let's do a hard pivot and we'll go to a lightning round. So um, a favorite activity when you are not working with data.
1: Yeah, I think most recently uh, generative AI. Well, I I'm not sure if this this considers working with data, but uh I've been getting my hands dirty with gen AI. Uh I okay. and, and and uh this year I have started on some coaching programs and a tech bot readiness program. So I just started last week. Um and that's what keeping me busy. Oh, good. So the the coaching program, what type of coaching? It's a generic coaching because I can do it with career coaching. So I wanted to be a I wanted to pick up some skills on how to coach. But I also felt that it would be good for my day to day management of my team as well, because there's some element of coaching. Um, And then now that I have embarked on this uh, women in tech board readiness program uh, that prepares women, specifically in tech and digital, um, to be to be sitting on boards. Uh, I I think the element of being able to coach, um, the management from a board perspective is also important.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. This is where there is a thinking that the manager, a better manager or boss, if you will, should be more of a coach rather than um a boss or a supervisor. That coach mindset is, I, I like it. I think it's very relevant. All right, if you were CEO for a day, what would you tell the data team?
1: Yeah, so I would tell them to
2: find me the most lucrative customers. That's a great question. Uh, one word to describe chat GPT. It's not one word, but it's
1: a very knowledgeable primary school kid.
2: Oh, very interesting. Primary school, that's the age level. Okay, um, fill in the blank. <laughs> data is?
1: Undepletable oxygen.
2: Any particular mentors or books or thought leaders that have inspired your career? Yeah. So if I think back, I think
1: the mentors who are really sharp and astute, um, yet the ones who have humility and empathy are the ones that really inspire me the most. I can't name a book for sure, but I like books that really speaks about rising through adversity, um, overcoming challenges, but still remaining really steadfast to um, their values and integrity.
2: Is there a data leader that you would most like to hear from on the Data Chief podcast?
1: Wow, if you could get Andrew Ng on, on there, it would be great. I mean, you, you, I, I guess everyone knows Andrew Ng. He's, uh, he's done yes, a lot of work with, yeah. with uh, Google Brain and and I've been taking courses on his deep learning AI um, and it just makes it so easy for me to understand. I think he, he makes it so approachable on courses on... Gen AI and LLMs. And whenever anyone comes to me and say, hey, I want to do a course on Coursera uh, for machine learning, I'm like, yeah, just go to Andrew Ng's course. And, and that's where you should uh, start off with.
2: Yeah, no, that's good. We we should invite him. I think we might have invited him like in year one when nobody had heard of this podcast. But I also think something that he's tried to get some of the data scientists and machine learning engineers to think more about recently is that optimizing the model is already late in the model process. We have to look at the gaps and biases in the data set on which the model is trained on. And I think he's recognized that universities haven't paid enough attention to that. So he's trying to help us tweak that. So it's it's all good. I'll close with one final question and you get to choose this one, depending on your mood at the start of your day in Singapore, either what are you most grateful for right now? Maybe beyond of course, the obvious of health and family or something that has made you just totally chuckle and laugh out loud recently.
1: Yeah. So I think COVID has dealt us a a tough hand. Um, I'm not sure how long you've guys been in Quarantine, But it was a long time for us. And being a small country, uh, I think being able to travel was a, a big win for me. <laughs> it was the moment the, the immigrations lifted those quarantines on certain countries, I was out there. So uh, and I never take it for granted now. So I think I would say being able to travel. Um, having all the concerts that we could go to. I think this is the year of concerts. Yes. Um, I mean, Taylor Swift is here. There was, uh, you know, Coldplay, uh, Taylor Swift concerts coming, Coldplay. I haven't got tickets to that, by the way. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I've been to my fair share at the start of this year to be able to be grateful. And then the last thing is about attending conferences. It's so different to be able to attend those data conferences, catch up with people that you know, you haven't met for a while, just really network and exchange ideas on what's the latest development happening in data as well. Because um, it's moving so rapidly, as you and I know, to be able to uh, exchange those ideas is really something that I don't take for granted. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it is moving quickly. Well, with that, Geraldine, I hope you do score some Taylor Swift tickets. And now I know that you also like Coldplay, as do I. And I look forward to meeting you, hopefully, in a conference in your region in the next year. Thanks for being on The Data Chief. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content.
1: The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.